0: Within three days of birth, she would get a terrible fever, go through a horrible amount of pain, and die. They had no idea what was causing this. Now, one doctor, Ignaz Semiweiss, he became a doctor in Vienna at General Hospital, coming in, knowing this was happening, but noticing something. In the ward number one, where he was working, that was the percentage of death, but in ward number two in the same hospital, less than half that number of women were getting this and dying. Now there's a moment there where you have to decide something. What do you do when you realize, because here's the thing, in ward number two, they were training midwives. In word number one, they were training doctors. The doctors were the ones that in some way, whether they knew it or not, held a responsibility for what was happening to these women. What do you do as a doctor when you figure out you actually are part of the problem? Then I turn it to all of us, what do we do? When we are confronted or discover that we have made mistakes, we have sinned, we have done something wrong, we are to blame for something. How do we react? How do we respond? Here's what he did. He began to study the two words to try to figure out what was going on. He didn't run from it. He didn't try to, let me cover this up because now I recognize like, we're the ones doing this. Instead he started studying it to figure out how to fix it. And he found out that in ward number two, the women gave birth on their sides, and in ward number one, they gave birth on their backs. And so he had all the women in ward number two start giving birth on their sides, but as you can imagine, it did nothing to change the death rate. He also figured out that in ward number one, after a woman died, a priest would walk the halls with a loud bell. And he wondered, was the loud sound frightening the women and giving them the fever? And so he stopped the priest from doing that, and you can imagine nothing happened. Well, in frustration after doing multiple things, he took a little break, cleared his mind, tried to figure this out, and when he came back, one of his friends, a colleague of his who was a pathologist, had caught a disease and died. He studied the body and realized that he had the exact same disease that was killing these women. It wasn't just women who could die from this. He had pricked his finger during an autopsy of one of the women who had died of childbed fever. Now, still no idea about how that actually worked, but this was his theory. Ready for this? In the mornings, the student doctors would perform autopsies. Sticking their hands into cadavers. In the afternoon, they would deliver babies. And there was something they did not do that we all might go, what in the world? Are you kidding me? They did not wash their hands. And so he went, they are transferring these particles from this cadaver over to this woman, and she's getting what they had. And so we instituted something that was just crazy in their day. Every single student doctor had to wash their hands with a chlorinated solution before they delivered babies. Guess what the result was? The percentage of deaths actually decreased more than even the second ward. It was down to one to three percent. I mean, it just plummeted after that. What do you do when you are confronted with your wrongdoing. What do you do when you are confronted by somebody who has been hurt by you? Who's been offended by you? What do you do when you wake up one day and you go, why am I living like this? Why is this sin still in my life? How do you deal with the fact when you are confronted by your wrongdoing? We're doing a series on gravitational force. This is actually the last message in it. And in this series, the point is this. There are a number of things that, like gravity, they pull on Paul. And as he finds himself getting out of alignment with the kingdom of God, these things pull him back. Today, I want to talk about something that is really, really significant. When we find, as we're going down the path We're trying to follow the king's will, and we find ourselves getting off, whether somebody brings it to our attention, whether our circumstances reveal it to us, whatever it is, we find ourselves over here, there is something that Paul says will pull us back, realign us. That's what we talk about this morning. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we ask you to open our hearts and our minds and to speak by the power of your spirit, that we might be people who live kingdom first in every area of our lives, every day of every week of every year, to your honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So my topic, you know, after being gone for six weeks and coming back and finally get to preach, is... It's really good, like in the sense that it's really important. And and I mean, if there's this thing that can bring you back, who wouldn't want to know that? I mean, I am well aware that I keep getting off the path. If you can give me something to help pull me back, I want it. At the same time, I'm kind of upset with the person who makes the preaching schedule, who happens to be me, for giving me this topic. My topic this morning is grief, not love, joy, happiness, power of the Holy Spirit, grief. I get to come back and depress everybody on my first Sunday, grief. But here's the thing about grief, we all in this room experience it. In lots of different ways, we experience grief. Do you have kids? You experience grief. (laughs) Do you have a job? You experience grief. Are you married? You experience grief. Do you have to sit through super long sermons? Of course not, come on. We all experience grief. But specifically today, I wanna talk about a kind of grief that Paul deals with in 2 Corinthians that is this gravitational pull to bring us back. It is the thing that if we approach it rightly, it can change us. When Dr. Samuel Weiss made that decision, it changed things, it made a difference. When we have the right kind of grief, which I guarantee you he had grief as he struggled with these women dying. When we have the right kind of grief, it pulls us back. Right? But here's not what we're talking about. Right? All of us grieve when somebody close to us dies. All of us grieve when you, get, you lose a job and it, it wasn't because you did anything wrong, It just there were cutbacks or something. There are things that happen to us that are out of our control, that we might grieve for, that's not this grief. This is what happens when we do something wrong and we're confronted by it. That's the grief that Paul is talking about. When I was younger, there was a group of friends, we always hung out, and one of the guys, he was different. He annoyed us. And I remember very clearly one day telling him, yeah, we're not going to do anything this day. We're just going to stay home. We're not hanging out. And then when he left, calling all of my friends over to my house and having a swim party. And then he found out. And as you can imagine, that was rather hurtful. And I was struck with, look what I've done. As I'm looking at this kid, my friend, this, that's the kind of grief. When you know you've done something wrong, this kind of grief can be what Charlie Brown calls good grief. Except not as Charlie Brown means it, nor as any of the other characters on the Peanuts mean it. One time, Linus wants to have Charlie Brown be their candidate for an election. And Lucy's response is, "Good grief." That's a good grief of frustration. We've all had those, right? Good grief. But what if we could actually have, no, literally, good grief. Like grief that is good. Grief that produces something positive? Look in Second Corinthians, chapter seven in verse 10. This is good grief. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. How is that for good grief? A grief that produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Right? Briefly, let me break that down. Uh, verse 10, sorry. Second Corinthians 7 verse 10. All right, let me break it down. Repentance, as Deacon Laurie said last week, it's a change of mind. All right? And that's a really good way to put it here. All right? It is thinking one way, but then beginning to think another way. All right? A change of how you think about something, a change of how you view it. That is the repentance here. And when that change of mind happens, it says it leads to salvation. Now. I want to be careful here. The people he's writing to already know Jesus. And just because you get caught doing something wrong and you change your mind about it doesn't mean you suddenly have eternal life in Jesus Christ. That's not what he means here. Here is what Redemption Church believes about salvation in the way that we usually think about it. When you... Acknowledge Jesus as your Savior and trust in him for your eternal life. You will know the forgiveness of God, and you will know eternity with Christ. But this is different. In Greek, that word means to rescue, to deliver, but it doesn't always have to mean from hell to heaven or from eternal death to eternal life, here it literally means something more like rescue or deliver. From what? From the thing you were doing wrong. When you keep going this direction and don't change your mind, guess what's going to happen? Whatever the negative things are that are impacting you, they're going to keep impacting you. But when you change your mind, you can be delivered from a continued entrenchment in the things that were wrong. And when that happens, it can lead to having no regret. Let me uh, show you exactly what that looks like. Here's the Corinthian situation. Now, again, last week, when Deacon Laurie talked about Corinthians, she described it as a half a log, which is a great description. We have half the story. Right? We just don't know everything that's going on. Because when Paul wrote this letter, he was not writing a letter going, you know what, in 2,000 years, there's going to be a church in a little elementary school, and they're going to, know, they're going to want to know what was going on. So let me just explain it. Here's some footnotes and things for you. It didn't happen. Instead, he's writing to an actual situation and we're reading into it the best we can. But generically, here's the circumstance at least this much was taking place. The Corinthian church had either a person in their congregation or people from the outside who came in. They were preaching against Paul in some way, and the church had at least a tacit approval of this false teaching against Paul. They were not supporting Paul in the way they should have. And, and whether or not they were, in turn, also preaching that didn't really matter, and we don't know. We just know that whoever it was, inside or from outside, they were teaching the wrong thing against the Apostle Paul, and this church was not standing up for the right thing. And so Paul wrote them that difficult letter, that tearful, hard letter, and he held it up to them and he said, here's your wrongdoing." And much like that doctor in 1846, here's the wrongdoing of the doctors. What will you do about it? Like me when I was younger and I stood in front of my friend. It's held up. All right, you know you did the wrong thing. What are you going to do about it? Here's the Corinthian church. Paul writes them this letter. And they are confronted by their actions and they have a choice. What are they going to do? Paul said they grieved. They grieved. Except in a particular way. They had a godly grief. Look at the result. Look back in your text. Verse 11. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. But also what eagerness to clear yourselves. Notice. There's no. Well, yeah, we weren't doing that. There's no. Oh, no, you got it wrong, Paul. We would never do that to you. There was no, oh yeah, but Paul's way out there and these guys are here, we're gonna stick with this. No excuses. When Paul confronted them, they had a change of mind. They had a repentance. And it led to an eagerness to clear themselves. Keep going. What indignation. It brought in then that sense of, oh my goodness, what have we been doing? What, are this, what is this guy doing or what are these people doing? What fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment is a terrible translation, honestly. It means something more like a desire for justice. A desire for what's right is what this means. They had a change of mind that led to a rescue, a deliverance from this false teaching, from a bad relationship with Paul, all of it. There's a renewal that is taking place in them. Because they had a change of mind when they were confronted with their wrongdoing. And it led to a deliverance. And they have no regret of this. Keep going. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. You took the necessary steps. It's not that you never did anything wrong. But when you were confronted with it, Saul is confronted with his sin in 1 Samuel. God had told him to destroy the Amalekites completely, and instead, he brings back some of the choice livestock. He brings back some trophies. And when the prophet Samuel comes and confronts him, Saul's response oh, well, the, the, the people, you know, they needed this. And, 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 and the sacrifices, we brought those for God. Let me shift the blame instead of accepting it. And at one point, when he finally says, all right, fine, Samuel, I get it, I sinned, he follows it up with, but, hey, will you come with me to the elders? That way I don't lose face or lose my reputation. That is not the kind of grieving or repentance that the Corinthians did. When they realized they were doing wrong, they went, we're doing wrong. We got to change our mind about these guys, about Paul, about how we're acting, and we're going to go down a different path and be delivered from this and have no regrets in doing so. Let me show you. Um, this is not in the Bible, um, but if the Corinthians had not done that, this is maybe what Paul would have written. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 11. For see what half-heartedness this wrong grief has produced in you. What apathy to clear yourselves. What annoyance that I would confront you on this. What irritation, what rejection of me, what self-righteousness, and what desire to cover up the truth. At every point you have proved yourselves guilty in the matter. I am ashamed to say that more often than not, that's my response. When I'm confronted with my sin, when I'm confronted with my wrongdoing, I am more likely to have that. How can I defend myself? How can I show you I'm not really as bad as you think? How can I come up with some type of justification that makes sense of what I'm doing? Because I don't want to face the truth that I was the one who was helping to kill those women when they were giving birth. I don't want to face the truth that I was the one that hurt my friend's feelings. I don't want to face the truth that I was the church that turned away from Paul to a false gospel because he'd been gone for a while. And I just should not have the guts to hold on to the truth. I don't face that. They did. Unfortunately, the doctors in the mid-1800s, they were not ready to face it. You would imagine that if somebody came along and they made a change as simple as, let's start washing our hands, and you watched the death rate just plummet, that everybody would be like, oh, my goodness, let's do this. Like, across the board, everybody, start washing your hands. Get that chlorinated solution because we are saving women's lives. That's not what they did. They either ignored him, ridiculed him, or flat-out rejected him. Why? Well, partly because that's not what the medical field was doing during that time. And how could this one person possibly change what we're doing? But even more than that, what does it mean to accept that that's what was happening? It means the doctors were in the wrong in that point. And instead, you know what happened? They just kept doing it the way they've been doing it. Do you have any idea over the next couple of decades how many women needlessly died in childbirth? Because they wouldn't change their mind. There's something called the... um, Simmelweis, uh, Simmelweis Reflex. They actually named it after him because of the circumstance. And, and here's what it says. It's a metaphor for a reflex-like tendency to reject new evidence or new knowledge because it contradicts the established norms, beliefs, or paradigms. How often is that us? I, I, how often is it just a, like a reaction? I don't want to take that. I don't want to make that change. I don't want to admit that's part of who I am. That is called worldly grief as opposed to godly grief. Right? And it's very simple. One major, major difference between the two Right. Godly grief, and literally in Greek it says, according to God. It's grief according to God. It's grieving in his ways. It's being confronted, and when you begin to feel like that pain or that distress or whatever it is, you have one of two reactions. The godly way, which is humility, selflessness, and trust in the Lord. Or the worldly which is exactly the opposite, pride, selfishness, fear. When you respond in this way, there's a change of mind and a deliverance with no regret. When you respond in this way, there is death. That's how Paul describes it in verse 10, death. Sometimes that's literal, as in the case of the doctors. Sometimes it is emotional. Sometimes it is with friendships. I recently confronted my five-year-old. That happens a lot. I can say recently, and it could have been like five times yesterday. And, and the confrontation went something like this. The two boys, five and seven, were playing Legos together. And they were playing very well for at least Two-and-a-half minutes, at which point, the younger one decided that his Lego piece, which happened to be a pterodactyl, was going to attack his brother's little boat and lift it up into the air, and his brother's screaming, and he's screaming, and I come in, and I'm like, what are you guys doing? They're yelling, both at the same time, giving me the explanation for why they are both right. Stop! What happened? And my younger son, who has this new saying that's going on, his new saying is, you can't control me. And he uses it all the time. And he said, my brother was trying to control me, and he can't control me. And I said, all right, how was he trying to control you? He wasn't letting me use my pterodactyl how I wanted to. Now, now wait a minute. Aren't you using your pterodactyl to disrupt his playing? You're using it to pick up an item that he's actually got in his hand and carry it away. Isn't that controlling your brother? (laughs) No. How is it different? Weren't you controlling his guys. No, I wasn't. I was controlling his boat. I about lost it. (laughs) I was not parent of the day at that moment. But listening to the, how do I keep giving excuses? How do I keep looking at this in a different way? How do I make sure I'm not in trouble? How do I make sure it's on somebody else? How do I hold on to my position, dig my heels in, and not change? The Corinthians did the opposite, the exact opposite. When confronted with wrongdoing, they grieved in a way that was humble, not selfish, trusting in God. They looked to him, and they went, all right, what has gone wrong? Okay, yes, we did this. We want to change. We want to do it differently. And as they're moved out of the orbit of being aligned with God's will, this pulls them back. And this is why it is so significant for us. Because how many times a month, a week, a day, do we start moving off of that path? And if what if getting back begins by recognizing the wrong and being willing in a godly way to go, yeah, I have gotten off. And believe me, I know how hard this is. Because if you admit that, here's a couple things you're gonna have to do. Number one, you're actually going to have to accept you were just wrong. And it's easy to accept maybe 50%, right? 25%, but to just come out and go, I was just wrong, that's hard, especially when how many times do you actually know you're wrong, but you don't want to admit it? Or sometimes you have to accept that what you did, you didn't mean to do, but you still did it. It's another one of our excuses, right? Well, I didn't mean that. I mean, I didn't intentionally do that but you still did it. And guess what? With that attitude, you're going to unintentionally do it again. Because there'll be no deliverance from that way of thinking. Or and this may be the hardest. All right, I want to talk mostly here to husbands and wives because I think this is one of the hardest. We have a really difficult time admitting our wrong until he or she admits they're wrong. And I hope I'm not alone in this because I'm going to feel like a total jerk. But you get into that fight and even when somewhere deep down you're like, yes, I messed up, but this person is still attacking and, and I've done some things right, right? Don't you have that thought? I've not done everything wrong. So until they also acknowledge it, I'm just gonna hold on. And what does that do? Okay, you, you eventually somewhat come to peace, but then what happens a week later, two weeks later? Right back at it again, same thing, because there's been no change of mind. There's been appeasement. There's been a little tiny bit of compromise. There's been a, oh, I'm tired of fighting. Fine, you're right. Yeah, that was genuine. (laughs) But there's no change of mind. And so there's no deliverance. There's just a continued fighting over the same things over and over again. All right. Godly grief is when we grieve according to God's ways. It is trusting in him It's humble and it is selfless. And it comes with a desire to actually change. Not just kind of make things go away for a while, but let there be a life change, a deliverance from a way of living that none of us like. To find a way that there's no regret because we changed. But it's going to start with, and just hear me, you. Not your kids, not your spouse, not your boss, you. Because the only person you can really change is you. Will you and I begin to grieve in a godly way when that wrong comes up and see what God can do with it? This poor guy, Dr. Samuel Weiss, he uh, didn't end well. As you can imagine, when everyone rejects him and you've got the answer, I mean, what it can do to you? He couldn't get hired. He eventually did finally get another job, and he went to another university hospital, and there he implemented the same thing. And guess what happened? The death rate plummeted again. But people still wouldn't listen to him. They would not listen to him. At one point, he finally ended up breaking. His wife left him, they sent him to an insane asylum. And he died, ironically, tragically, from an infection. However, a couple decades later, things began to change. And a man named Joseph Lister, the father of antiseptics, said this about him. Beginning of the 1900s. I think with the greatest admiration of him and his achievement, and it fills me with joy that at last he is given the respect due him. I leave you with this thought. Godly grief will, because it says it in the scriptures, it will produce salvation It will produce a lack of regret. It can change who you are. Doesn't mean everything's going to be perfect right afterwards. It doesn't mean the stuff you had done here is suddenly going to disappear. What it means is you're not going to continue it. That there is a better way. And we can be pulled back into alignment with the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that even though we get off the path quite often through sin, through mistakes, sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally, Lord, that there is a way that we can be pulled back. Father, as we confront our wrongdoing, no matter how we learn of it, God, help us not to have that reflexive reaction of defense where we are unwilling to change, but instead to have godly grief, that we might be different people. In the name of Jesus, amen.